The following is a recording from LTCCC's June webinar, Why Comfort Matters, Reducing Reliance on Antipsychotics. The program is led by Tina Alonzo, an expert in dementia care. For video and slides, head to nursinghome411.org slash webinar comfort matters, and you can find that link in the show notes. Enjoy. So this is our guest speaker, Tina Alonzo, who you could also see. I have um, very proud to say that I've known Tina for a good dozen years now. Tina is the director of Comfort Matters in the Beatitudes campus, in, which is a nursing home in Phoenix, Arizona. She has been honestly a tremendous positive force in improving the lives and, of residents uh, who are living with dementia. And I would say of people living with dementia in any setting. Uh, her work has been recognized in the New Yorker, in the New York Times, in some really tremendous articles. I remember reading, goodness, probably 12 years ago or so, the New York Times. And they're available, of course, still online. Also by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, by uh, or in numerous journal articles. And I would say also importantly, by the entire range of stakeholders from care staff, to providers, to resident advocates like us and those we work with. She has just been, as I said, a, um, a tremendous valuable force, uh, an inspiration to me personally. I am so glad that she's here. I'd be remiss if I didn't commemorate that, that today is World Elder Abuse Awareness Day. And to my mind, the people who really um, uh, in the nursing home world, many of the people in the nursing world who are most vulnerable to abuse are quite often people with dementia, and abuse can take many different forms. Uh, we have some resources on our website. Again, it's nursinghome411.org. We have an abuse, um, neglect, and crimes against resident uh, center where you could find out, and this is, could be for providers, for family members, for residents, for ombudsmen, et cetera, uh, how to identify abuse and how to help stop it. But without further ado, I am going to turn this over to Tina. Hello, everyone. It's so great to be with you all. I always feel as though that a kindred spirits as we explore how do we improve the quality of life for people living with dementia. And so today we're going to focus on how do we really reduce reliance on antipsychotic medication and create well-being for people who are having trouble thinking. I often like to start out by telling a story. Today's story is true, and it's really all about Mildred Halverson. And you may be saying to yourself, well, you're using her name. Why are you doing that? I'm doing it because her family wants her story told. And it's an important story because it illustrates the impact that antipsychotic medications can have on an individual and also the impact that can happen when they are discontinued. So I met Mildred a few years ago when her family came to me and said that they were really worried about where she was living. You see, Mildred had been diagnosed with dementia about five years earlier. She had moderate trouble thinking. She still recognized her family. She loved her great-grandchildren and her grandchildren. She loved to cook. She could still remember the importance of how to make a cobbler. She found strength in faith. And 
during Mildred's experience with Alzheimer's disease, they started to see a more rapid decline in who Mildred was, how she was thinking, and the things she could do for herself. About three months before I met, met Mildred, um, her family was made aware that they had introduced an antipsychotic medication into her medication regime. Now, the reason that they did this, the organization where she lived, the reason that they did this is because Mildred was getting up at night. And they really didn't know what to do about that because no one else was getting up. And so they thought that if they gave her an antipsychotic medication, that Mildred would sleep through the night and all would be well. What Mildred's family reported was she had gone from someone who was walking around. Often she didn't know where she was going, but she was happy to go. That she could speak some. She recognized her family, recognized familiar staff, and took great interest in the things that she enjoyed. All of that was beginning to slip away. And so they were very interested in the opportunity for Mildred to live in a place where perhaps antipsychotic medication would not be given. What we're gonna do in our session today is we're gonna look at the progression of dementia and hopefully what you will see are the people that you care for as we learn what to expect when folks continue to decline through dementia's long journey. We're gonna look at the connection between what people do and how they are communicating. There is absolutely a connection between behavior and communication and how that might benefit us in looking at dementia-related behavior as it's often referred to, what it means and what we can do about it. So if we look at how we can understand dementia, it's important that we kind of review what's going on in the brain. And I seldom do any speaking that I don't talk a little bit about brain science. Over the years, we've learned more and more about what the brain does and what happens during that journey that we know as dementia. We know that many people who are diagnosed has some serious issues with their memory. But this is not a memory illness per se. This is really a thinking illness. And as the disease progresses, people have more and more difficulty thinking, which means also that their memory is impaired, but they also have difficulty communicating. They have difficulty caring for themselves. And much of the time, this is how we look at Alzheimer's disease or any of the other 100 and so different kinds of dementia that have been identified. People start to have more difficulty thinking, we can see it. They have word finding difficulties. They begin to have difficulties with their finances. If they drive, they really shouldn't drive anymore. It progresses through that mild stage into more of a moderate experience where people are starting to show um, a lot more difficulty with decision-making, their long-term memory becomes impaired, as well as short-term memory. They start to have real issues with communication, both in being understood and in understanding what others say to them. We know at some time during that moderate phase that they start to have more difficulty caring for themselves. In fact, sometimes we even refer to it as self-neglect 
because they may not recognize that they need to take a shower or they need to change their clothing. Those prompts and cues that are really firmly embedded in our brain no longer work. As the disease progresses, we see that people become more dependent on others. They no longer can think through the sequence of events that allow them to brush their teeth and get dressed in the morning. And they need help from others to carry out those tasks. Dining may become a problem for them, even though they wanna eat, just putting together the sequence of things that would allow you to be successful begin to be a problem for them. And at the end of the disease, we know that these are folks whose brain has become so compromised, that they become a good host, for many of the illnesses that commonly exist, and they will die as a result of dementia. Any kind of irreversible dementia is a life-limiting illness. And sometimes as we look at the progression of dementia, we often are afraid to tell families about this or to tell the person themselves. But the truth is there is knowledge and power in knowing that this is a life-limiting illness and being able to prepare for what comes next. Now, this is generally where our conversation about dementia ends, but it's important that we go further. We've just talked about all of the disabilities that are associated with that progression of dementia, the loss of thinking, the loss of being able to care for oneself, the loss of insight, all of those things are true and accurate. And that is what's happening in the person's brain. But what is also happening is that there are abilities and things that remain. And it's important that we know about those things because this is where we can create quality of life. Now, many years ago, when I entered the field of, of geropsychology and I wanted to make a difference in the lives of others, I did not know the things that I'm gonna share with you today. Some of them are relatively new developments in how we understand the brain and what it does. But the first thing is, and it's important, is the individual knows when they're comfortable and when they're not. And you may be saying to yourself, well, that's great, but why do we care? Everything about our lives, our well-being, our sense of joy, is all intertwined with comfort. I'm going to give you a definition in just a minute of what that really looks like. But comfort is essential to the human experience if we want to live well. And how many times have we heard that this dementing illness is just something to be endured and then the individual dies? And what I would offer to you today is that's not true, is that people can live well if we help focus on their abilities. And one true ability is they know when they're comfortable and when they're not. And what that really means to those of us who care for them in any way or capacity that we do is that they are experts on their own comfort, and we cannot be. We also know that their ability to communicate exists even as verbal skills decline. And what I mean by that is people are able to tell us what works for them and what doesn't, what gives them joy and pleasure and what doesn't, through their actions. Now, sometimes we've misinterpreted actions. We've actually, you know, called those any number of things like aberrant or abnormal because people don't act the way they used to. But really, 
this is the best way of communicating. And if we think about it, even before a child becomes verbal, they constantly tell us what works for them and what doesn't. So humans are well-skilled at picking up on what someone means by their actions, even when they don't utter a sound. And probably the most profound thing that I have learned in my studies of brain science is that emotions are intact. And what that should mean to those of us who care about people with dementia is this. How you feel is a lot more important than how you think. I need to focus on your feelings because those are robust. Those have not changed. And what happens if a person feels good? What does the quality of their life look like? Well, of course, it's high. And so we're able to maximize abilities and minimize those disabilities. We can't fix the disabilities, but we can enhance and focus on those things that work. So when we're talking about comfort, um, there are many great clinical definitions, but I really, really favor the one that you can find in Webster's Dictionary. And the reason that comfort is so important, it is so intertwined with well-being and living well, that any talk that I give that doesn't include something about comfort really isn't going to help the person who has trouble thinking. So this is Webster's dictionary definition. And if you think about the people that you know who have dementia, don't they need strength and hope? Don't we need to ease their grief and their trouble? Don't they respond to reassurance and consolation and soothing? If you can't think and you feel like a stranger in a strange land, the best thing to do is to feel like you matter and that what is going on with you is important. We know that these are folks who we really need to focus on eliminating their distress and their torment because the world around them is built for people who can think and think clearly. Now, I would say that really, if we all wanna be comfortable, these are the things that matter to us. But I wanna run through them with a dementia lens. And the first thing is, if we want people to be comfortable when they have trouble thinking, is they need to be free from pain. And of course, the struggle for us is that most of the time, we determine whether or not someone is in pain based on what they tell us. We have to look at that differently if we want the person to be free, not only from physical pain, but also from emotional pain, which remains as robust as it ever was. And so we have to look at ways to eliminate any kind of pain that could be in the person's experience. And that takes a village, which is why I'm so glad to be on a Zoom call with you all today, because all of us matter when it comes to making sure that the person is free from pain. Folks need to sleep when they're tired, and wake when they're refreshed. Now, what we know about folks with dementia is that their circadian rhythms are generally impacted. We know that over 90% of the people who have dementia are going to have a disturbance in their sleep-wake cycle. That's just what's happening to their brain. They can't control it. And so unfortunately for many people, they may sleep at times 
where we wish they would be at. But if we want their brain to be its best, to function the best that it can, then we need to try and avoid the fatigue of trying to keep them up when they really want to sleep, when their brain says shut down, and really give them things that are engaging and wonderful to do when they are awake, even if it's in the middle of the night. People have to eat what they enjoy when they're hungry. And so if we're in an organization where we're serving people with dementia, this really can upend the organization routine if people are sleeping when they're tired and waking when they're not because it's a 24-hour experience for the person with dementia. You know, often I'm asked by families and sometimes by staff, you know, what do you mean that somebody eats what they want? What if they're a diabetic? What if they have congestive heart failure? You know, what if they have in-stage kidney disease? And what we know is that the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics many years ago told the entire medical community to stop giving people therapeutic diets. Even those folks who have diabetes, end-stage kidney disease, congestive heart failure, other cardiac illnesses. And so this is really about education. If we go back to the talk a few moments ago, when we talked about how dementia is a life-limiting illness, we're really talking about how do we give this person that sense of well-being that makes a difference. And the die is already cast. You know, if the person's A1C is high, they aren't going to be here. That's a predictive indicator for 10 years from now, five years from now. And for many people that we know who have dementia, their life is limited and it will not, they will not be here in 10 years. They may not be here in five years. And really we're talking about their sense of well-being. What would they choose for themselves? And so often it might be the lemon pie. They need to receive care on their own terms. You know, people with dementia, regardless of their age, have spent a good amount of time figuring out what works for them. How to get dressed, what the mechanics of that look like. And we, as their care partners, need to figure out those kinds of things that have made the difference for them. And that can be as simple as do you put your pants on before you put your shirt on or much more complex about how you take a bath and what method you use to get clean. But what we know is this is non-negotiable. As much as we would like it to be the way we want it, it can't be. It has to be what is most comfortable and makes the most sense to them or the person with dementia can become self-protective and fearful of anyone who tries to engage them. They have to be engaged in things that make sense. Now, I've been in any number of nursing homes and assisted livings across the country, and generally speaking, there are well-meaning folks who are looking to increase quality of life through any number of things. But the thing that makes the most sense to the person with dementia are the things that they have always enjoyed. Because their brain is impaired in terms of thinking and memory, decision-making, it is impossible for them to learn new things. But what they may not have forgotten are the things that they love. 
the hymns that they sang as a child, the country and Western music that Mildred enjoyed, which was Charlie Pride and Kiss an Angel Good Morning, just put it on loop for her. So the things that really matter and create quality of life for persons with dementia should be focused on their individual interests and not what we can do in a group. It's important that we look at the environment. You know, I've been here at the Beatitudes campus where there were situations where I really couldn't hear myself think in those neighborhoods where people with dementia lived. And I can think clearly, but it was so noisy and there was so much commotion that I really couldn't hear myself think. If you already have trouble thinking and the environment doesn't support that you can be your best self, then things are gonna happen that nobody wants to have. So we really need to be mindful about what the environment should be like for individuals who are struggling with pulling out those things that are important to them and not being bombarded by everything that's around. You know, as we dig a little bit deeper into dementia-related behavior, it's important to know that our brain is really responsible for kind of going around the part that's broken. And so we're able to bring things into our emotional brain through our five senses. In as much as they're intact, we are able to influence how people feel through how they smell, touch, taste, see, hear. All of those things are important and we can bypass the thinking and get to the good part, which is not broken through the emotional brain through those five senses. And I, I offer you this, this experiment. If you're ever around chocolate chip cookies and you love chocolate chip cookies, you smell the cookies and before you can even think about it, it goes to your emotional brain. It makes you feel good. And then it is immediately probably tied to this memory of your grandmother making cookies at Christmas or Hanukkah or another holiday. And suddenly it's almost as though you're transported, but it goes up into your emotional brain first. Now it's important to know that comfortable people, people who have a sense of well being, they don't do all of the challenging things that often result in prescriptive medications. They are not prescribed antipsychotic medications. They're not needed. And so this is how we know we can kind of circumvent what's going on in the person's brain and create that sense of wellness. We just need to know how. So there's some dilemma that's associated with dementia-related behavior. You know, for some time, we have often referred to it um, in clinical circles as agitated, aggressive at times, perhaps combative. And all of those words really serve to make this more of a clinical medical problem than what it truly is, which is this opportunity to hear from the person and the only way that they can, that something is not working for them. And so really, we should be looking at the things that people do that are troublesome or 
appear that the person is uncomfortable or distressed as indicators of distress and not dementia-related behaviors. In my old days as a clinician, you know, I was essentially taught that people who have trouble thinking, well, you know, we throw up our hands and we say, well, there's nothing we can do. This is how they get. And what I want to offer to you is if we shift our paradigm and start thinking about dementia-related behaviors as indicators of distress, we have a much better chance of leaving that old thinking behind and embracing something where we indeed can do something that creates quality of life and reduces the likelihood that people are going to do stuff that we don't want to. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, but medications are rampant. And certainly Richard and I were speaking right before we began the webinar that antipsychotics, anxiolytics as well, but antipsychotics are on the rise. And much of what we did around COVID was difficult for people with dementia to bear. And so it makes sense that as people do things that we don't want them to, when we begin to think about what are the remedies for that? And historically, we have reached for medication. And we're gonna spend a little bit of time talking about why we should not do that and why that really doesn't work. But let's begin by looking at some of the, the prescriptive beliefs that we have around antipsychotic medication. You know, and the first thing, it's much broader than psych meds, you know, and that is that we believe in Western civilization there's generally a medication that can fix a problem. Now that usually holds true until we have encountered a problem that cannot be fixed by medication. And then we may see, well, that's not always the case. But many people believe this. We're often physicians who actually believe this. And so it's important that we actually counteract that. Not all illnesses respond to medication. What we know about Alzheimer's disease, even though we have a brand new medication, we're going to have to wait and see how it works. Um, I've heard both good and bad. But generally speaking, we currently do not have medications that can fix the problems that are associated with dementia. Families often believe that these medications have manageable side effects. And that the benefits are going to outweigh the risks. The challenge for us, and many of us who are practitioners, myself included, is that we've taught them that. And indeed, there are serious side effects that are associated with antipsychotic medications. In my old days as a, as a, a young clinician, I believed in medication wholeheartedly. I did until the evidence and the research taught me otherwise. And for many of us, we grew up believing on our chosen professions that antipsychotic medications, that was the only way to control behavior. So we had to give someone a pill and it would make it better. So I always like to talk about medications with folks, um, regardless of what your role is, whether you're ombudsman or you're a, um, a clinician, you're a practitioner provider. I know there are many different folks on the phone. 
Um, but I like to speak about medications because I think the more that we understand about them, it's just like understanding the progression of dementia. The more you understand about medications, the easier it is to address the issues that are associated with them. So this is the definition of an antipsychotic group of medications. I'm not gonna read it, everybody can read it for themselves. But as you look at this definition, where does it say that it should be used to treat people with dementia? It's not there. And there's a reason it's not there because this class of medications was not developed to treat people with dementia. It is being used off-label to try to do something. And again, I go back to, they're confused, they get like that, there's nothing we can do. And in our early days, we put spaghetti at the wall and much of the spaghetti was formulated around medication. So these meds are not created. They were not, they were not pulled together to treat people with dementia. And here are the most common antipsychotics by name. And the reason I want you to see them is because we may not even be familiar with the generic form of something or the brand name of something and may not even realize in our own families whether somebody is receiving an antipsychotic or not. And so it's important that we pull back the curtain and we see this is the name of the medications in that antipsychotic group that are often given to older adults. And this is the black box warning that is issued by the Food and Drug Administration with every single solitary prescription of an antipsychotic that is being given to somebody with dementia. And essentially what it says is that people who receive this medication for longer than 12 weeks are at a five-fold increase for death related to stroke, cardiac event, or pneumonia. And what it really means is the medication disrupts the person's brain enough that it impacts their heart, their lungs, and their brain even further. And when we think about dementia, we already know that these are folks who are prone to all kinds of neuro events that can occur because of the dementia. And now we've added additional burden onto that brain. How often do families not know or staff do not know that these medications are black boxed? Sobering stuff. And of course, we have this risk of death, this five-fold increased risk for death. And the longer the person is on the medication, the greater the risk. So that assumption that we had earlier about the side effects are, are small in comparison to what the outcome can be. When we look closely at the research that says whether or not these medications actually control dementia-related behavior, we find that they do not. They don't work. 
So the fact that it cre creates a risk for death and the research indicates that when we give this medication, it does not control behavior, really results in the fact that we are probably making expensive urine and the individual has profoundly increased their risk of dying sooner than they normally would have just related to dementia. So if we <coughs> take up again, this idea of the indicators of distress, recognizing that medications are not the way to go. And it's important that we begin to um, pull together this idea that what people do, it means something. So what is the person doing that is a struggle for everyone? For the person with dementia, maybe for their care partner, what are they doing? And then we need to think, what are they trying to tell us? Since they can't tell us with their words, what are they trying to tell us? And on this slide, there's some examples of common things that people do that would normally result in a prescription for an antipsychotic. What are they doing and what does it mean? And this is an important step in beginning to understand why we can look at this differently why there are things that we can do that would result in a different outcome that does not include medication and yet reduces the likelihood that people are going to do things that are going to be difficult. And so I'm just going to look at the middle one and talk about that one for just a second. The person with dementia calls out for help. What could it mean? I have a need that has not been met. I can't tell you what it is. And if you do a bit of detective work, you're going to be able to figure it out. Help me figure it out. If I meet that need, then the calling out will go away. Here's a way of looking at it in a little bit more detail. What is the person doing? We're going to step away from those words that have been used uh, with too much um, frequency like agitated or combative, aggressive. What's the person doing? I'm gonna describe it. What do those actions mean? Because they mean something. And then what can I do to make it better? So if I know that there's someone who has a lot of knee pain and they are really resistive to getting a shower, if they try and, and take a poke at me or they curse at me when they're in the shower, well, perhaps it means that they hurt. And the very nature of what I'm doing causes them pain. And if I'm gonna do something about it, maybe we look at a different way of either helping the person bathe, but also addressing the physical pain in their needs in their knees so they don't feel like they have to curse at me or try to hit me. And although this seems simple, this is really the underpinnings of how we make things better. So what is the, what is the person doing? What does it mean? And what are we gonna do about it? I wanted to spend just a few more minutes talking with you about Mildred Halverson. 
you know, as she relocated to the Beatitudes campus, we recognized that she was receiving an antipsychotic medication, won't say which one, one that was on that list three times a day. And her family, while they were very concerned about her living uh, in this other organization where the medication was, was uh, started, they were also really concerned about her coming off of it. They were concerned that perhaps we would not want her to live here if she was up at night. And we reassured them that we were gonna peel back that medication. It's a medication that you slowly decrease that we were gonna peel back that medication and that they didn't have to worry about us saying that Mildred couldn't live with us because we weren't gonna do that. But it was important that we begin to see why she stopped walking, except very little, why she stopped talking, why she couldn't recognize her family, why she would sit in a chair and stare off into space instead of being engaged in things that she really enjoyed. And why this happened in a three-month time span, which is not consistent with how dementia progresses. And so we did just that. Family said, well, we thank you for trying. We'll understand if you fail, but okay. So we began to peel things back. And over about six weeks, we were able to completely discontinue all of the antipsychotic medication that Mildred was receiving. And as we pulled back each dose, and it was less and less, we start to saw, we actually saw Mildred reemerge. She started walking again. We were able to get her a little physical therapy to help strengthen those limbs that had not been used. She started to speak again a little bit here and there. She recognized her sons for the first time in several months. One day, her son, who had been a bit reluctant to reduce the medication, came to me and asked if he could speak with me privately. And I said, absolutely. And he came in and he said, I held out no hope for this. He goes, my mother's journey has been a difficult one. He goes, but you gave us our mother back. And of the many experiences I've had, the one that I really relish the most is hearing that statement, you gave us our family member back. Dementia doesn't have to prematurely impact the individual when we use medications to subvert who they are. Mildred lived with us a good long while. And yes, she did get up at night. And yes, that was kind of a, a exciting time for her because she would sleep during the morning hours and be up at night. But she never required antipsychotics again. And what we did see was the gradual um, progression of the disease that we would anticipate in this. I thank you all for listening to me today. And I uh, believe that, that Richard's going to have some questions. There we go. Uh, this is Richard, sorry about that. I just needed to unmute myself and start my video again. Tina, I was just so involved with your, with your program. Um, thank you, it was really, really excellent. Let me go back to my PowerPoint, um, just a couple of slides and then we'll open it up for Q&A. So if anyone has questions, 
please, um, please put them in the Q&A and I will read them out. Uh, before we do that, I just want to um, mention our, our next webinar, which is on Tuesday, July 20th. We're gonna talk about nursing home discharges. We have uh, guest speaker, Tanya Kessler with Mobilization for Justice. And you can see where to register, register there, excuse me, or on our website, nursinghome411.org. And we also have a bonus program where we focus on the two Amazon programs, again, in the Hudson Valley. Everyone's welcome to attend, but it's really focused on those two programs. And that's coming up this Thursday in two days, again, at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, for updates, please um, sign up for future programs, nursinghome411.org forward slash join. Uh, if you're a long-term care ombudsman and you want us to let your supervisor know that you attended this program, please visit um, surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash ltccc dash ltcop1. Um, and I just want to say, Tina, I'm going to stop sharing. Thank you so much for just a thoughtful and instructive, informative program. I, I really appreciate it. Let me see if we have, we have some questions here. Uh, so we have, this is from an anonymous attendee. You mentioned that the ability to communicate doesn't go away with dementia, but what looks like is different, but what that looks like is different, excuse me. What are your recommendations for improving communication between family members and their loved ones suffering from dementia? Great question. And so we would say that it's important that they know the same things that we as, as professionals know is that people, they will communicate through their actions. So we can tell when somebody is enjoying something, you know, they're sitting there, they're relaxed, you know, their face looks relaxed, their body looks relaxed. Even if they're unable to smile because they have the mask associated with Alzheimer's disease, but they look relaxed. Um, we can also see when something isn't working for them. And so really helping family understand the language the person is communicating in is important. What is the individual doing? That does that tell us that they are enjoying themselves or not? And I think that that important part of understanding the progression of the disease and the fact that there are things that remain in there, things that families can do that would create comfort is an important part of any kind of education we would ever, we would ever offer them. And so they may say a word or two, but it's really their actions that we're looking at to determine whether something's working or not. Thanks, Tina. Um, the next question was, is from Gladys. Um, what was done at night with Mildred when she woke up? Uh, it might be hard for caregivers who live with them. And so we, lots of different things that we could look at. Um, you know, the music and memory program is really an important thing. We often see that folks really will respond to music or something that, that captivates them. Um, while their partner is sleeping. We also know that at some point, this may be when a family decides that they can no longer care for the person at home because they're up all night and the individual needs to sleep. And so it's an important balance of looking at what are the needs of the person at home versus the needs of the individual who is receiving care. So we try to engage them in things that are, are important 
We just need to be mindful that there are limits on what the caregiver can endure and limits on how the person with dementia can cope. Thanks, Tina. Um, that, that I'm gonna um, take the um, host's priority here and, and ask a follow-up question to that. I know that, that Beatitudes Campus has a range of services and I was just wondering how how that fits in, you know, in your experience and, and, and in your work. Also that you've done uh, here in New York and, and elsewhere, um, work uh, with hospice and, and with, with um, nursing homes. So I guess if you could talk a little bit about um, further about, you know, how different types of communities or settings um, address, um, you know, these issues for lack of a better way of putting it. No, I, I think the most important thing, Comfort Matters actually operates in 12 different states currently um, in multiple organizations around the country, Seattle, the New York City, um, and lots of points in between. But the more that we do this work, the more that we recognize that everybody is an individual and there is never a one size fits all. Yes, the Beatitudes Campus serves about 750 people on any given day people who live independently, people live in assisted living setting, and people who lived, live in our nursing home or skilled setting. But what we know about dementia is it doesn't know licensure. It only knows need. And when we come at this from the perspective of trying to meet the person with dementia and their care partners where they are, then we can often develop strategies that are independent of other kinds of situations and really are just focused on what are the needs of this person? These, this person and their, and their constellation of family and friends. And how do we address those needs specifically to them? So I always try to stress, let's not, let's not say there's a hard fast rule because there isn't. And that we need to individually consider what are the needs, wants and desires of this group that we're working with right here in front of us. Thanks so much, Sina. Um, so the next question, I'm not sure if either one of us can answer the questions from Maxine. She asked, can ombudsmen look at medical records if they suspect patients are being given antipsychotics? How do we get consent? Do we need the consent? Um, I don't know if you feel comfortable answering that. I think I have. Yeah. I'll, I'll defer to you. Okay. And... Um, my, my understanding is that the ombudsman can look at medical records, but it must be with the consent of the resident or the resident's representative. So that's that's really important. I think a lot of what Tina has talked about, a lot of the work we've done over the years um, helps people to understand that, that every resident and in his or her place, um, the person who's making the decisions for that resident who has the authority to do that, has the right to ask about medications. Uh, Tina gave a partial list of some of the most popular medications that we see here. But I, um, it's really important to ask and to help, you know, I think from the Amazon perspective is to help empower the resident and, and or the family member to ask questions and to be aware, not to be afraid. Um, they have a right to know that's in the, you know, in, in the rules, it's everyone's right. And I would say, um, even though we're focused on our work on this area at LTCC is largely focused on nursing homes, as Tina said, um, dementia care and what's appropriate for people with dementia doesn't know any boundaries between one setting or another. And good dementia care in a nursing home is good dementia care at home or in assisted yeah. living, et cetera. Yes. 
Um, so uh, thanks, it's an interesting question, Maxine. Uh, another question from an anonymous attendee. What are some ideas to share with facilities to get them to look at other options for dementia residents than medications? How do we as advocates approach the subject? Excellent presentation. Oh, that's kind. So um, I, I always go back to that philosophy. Can we help them embrace the philosophy? First of all, first of all, it's important that we recognize that we're essentially on the same side, okay? What we want is what's best for the person with dementia. In a, a skilled setting, you know, your knowledge may be uh, more broad than the person who uh, has, has trouble thinking. Uh, maybe more broad than the staff. And so let's start with the idea that we're on the same, we're on the same team, okay? And if we're on the same team, what we really want is for the person to live well. That slide that I talked about, if we can talk about things in terms of what is the person doing? What are they, what do they mean by it? And what can we do to help it? Then that we create an opportunity to maybe make a difference. Um, we also are always interested in working with organizations across the country. So if ever anyone is ever interested in comfort matters, they absolutely can uh, come to our website. We'd be happy to talk with them about it. But I believe if you know who the person is, you can offer sort of suggestions that might remedy the situation. But certainly it's a partnership that allows us to get past the, you have this role and you have that role. Thanks, Tina. And uh, for everyone, I posted earlier on in the chat uh, the web the um, link to Tina's website, Comfort Matters. Uh, our next um, person, Camilla, had just a comment. If any attendees have not watched the film Alive Inside, that has more information regarding the benefits of music. And yeah, there, there, there's certainly um, uh, a lot to be said and a lot of good practices out there, music and memory, being a, being a very uh, fine organization that has helped get iPads and music into the homes of residents uh, with dementia. Absolutely. Uh, um, Janine, um, said, thank you, uh, thank you for so much helpful information, Tina. I am finding out if my dad who has dementia is on antipsychotics, his nursing home cut back on the recreational activities and he's bored, sometimes wants to go home. Um, I think that's just a comment. Thank you, Janine. And then Kathy um, posted, thank you, Tina. As an ombudsman, I have seen numerous instances of antipsychotic medications being used to control quote unquote behavior. Let's hope your perspective becomes the standard in care. Thank you, Kathy. Um, another anonymous attendee, are there any disadvantages to removing someone from antipsychotics after they've been receiving them for an extended time unnecessarily? Um, there really, there aren't any in the literature. So this is not Tina speaking. Um, this is what we see in the, in the research. However, let me just say that for the individual who maybe has lived with lifelong schizophrenia, okay? So this is somebody who was diagnosed in their 20s or 30s or maybe even younger than that. And they have lived with, um, with the psychosis that's associated with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder. That individual may have comfort associated with those medications. But we were not talking about those folks today. We are talking about people strictly with dementia. So when we look at the literature, there does not seem to be 
any kind of a problem with withdrawing them. What we do know is, especially for antipsychotic medications, it is something that we discontinue in stages. So we don't pull it all away at once, we discontinue it in stages. And generally speaking, doctors are very aware, medical providers are very aware of the guidance surrounding how you uh, discontinue these, this class of medicine. Thanks, Tina. And I would just say, as many of you know, we have a, um, a lot of resources on, um, on dementia care on our website, including fact sheets about uh, gradual dose reduction and um, behavioral interventions for residents with dementia, uh, which could be useful if you're working with your um, with staff or with administration and in care planning for, for residents with dementia. Again, they're focused on the um, on nursing homes, but as Tina said before, uh, you know, essentially good dementia care in a nursing home is good, same as good dementia care anywhere. So the rules may not necessarily be in effect in home care or in assisted living, but the good dementia care um, certainly can be, it should be. Um, Amelda said, yes, this has been so, so good, so grounded, so person-centered. In addition to what Tina has offered it so well, anyone who found this presentation helpful would love two books by Dr. Al Power, Dariotician, Dementia Beyond Drugs and Dementia Beyond Disease. And yeah, they're, they're very good books. Um, the next is from, um, oh, Camille was just about a link. Sorry about that. And then Maxine, Maxine followed up, um, but the dementia resident may not have competence to consent. And as Amazon, we don't always see family members that's hit or miss. Those things are true, but the resident always has the right to privacy, and there are limitations to what the ombudsman can do. There are certainly other ways in which you could try to not work around and get access, but work around the challenge of not getting access if you can't you know, get uh, consent from the family member, uh, because you can help to advocate for good resident-centered care. Some of the practices certainly that Tina has been involved in. I would suggest, of course, speaking to your ombudsman supervisor or your state ombudsman, um, you know, for more help there. Uh, and then we have one more question. Do any standard procedures exist to guide understanding dementia patients' preferences to best care for them as their dementia is progressing, i.e. knowing their food preferences, music preferences, et cetera? Um, I wish there was a better way of doing this, but there is, there is considerable literature around those very topics um, and pulling them all together can really make a difference. Um, certainly I always refer to uh, Pioneer Network um, because they have many wonderful tools that would allow you to better determine what a person's preferences might be, especially when it comes to things they enjoy eating and you know, things they enjoy doing. Thanks, Tina. Um, I would just uh, add to that, we, we have a actually a form that we put together on our website. Uh, we have a family and ombudsman resource center if you go to nursinghome411.org. And the form is, uh, we try to make it as simple as possible, but it lays out some things that the resident like when he or she likes to wake up, when, what he or she likes to eat, the type of music or TV shows that they like, the type of activities that they like, things that comfort them, et cetera. And that could be used for someone who has dementia or for someone who doesn't have dementia because Sometimes, you know, someone becomes, you know, whether or not they have dementia, they may become distressed, they may become depressed or unhappy. And um, the, the care staff may not always be in a position to know what those needs are. And that actually came from 
my personal experience with my Aunt Hilda, who I remember, remember her daughter had signs on the door saying, you know, how she'd like to be called and, uh, you know, some other information. So this is, this form could be used to really put in as much or as little as you want to record for the, for the individual. Uh, I'm going to say thank you again, Tina, from the bottom of my heart. It's so nice to see you and so appreciative of you joining us, your presentation, and of course, your just incredible and inspirational work. So thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone who joined us today. We're going to get the program up on our YouTube channel and as a podcast recording available through our website and, of course, on YouTube. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, Tina. Thank you. Bye.